Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hazen. I am your host. And on today's podcast, we are going to continue our series of conversations with candidates for the state legislature in 2020. And joining the podcast today is William Hughes. He is a Democratic candidate for State House in House District 21. This is up in Holly Springs and parts of Canton in Cherokee County. William and I talked about the state's ongoing response to the COVID-19 pandemic, including his view of whether the response has prioritized businesses in the state's economy over other pressing issues like getting kids back into the classroom. We also talked on Saturday afternoon, so this was shortly following the news that civil rights hero and Georgia Congressman John Lewis passed away. John Lewis served as an important figure in the fight for justice and equal rights for Black people in this country. And as we've discussed on our show and with candidates, people in public service are still called to build on that fight that John Lewis dedicated his life to. So our prayers, our love, all of that goes out to Congressman Lewis and his family as they process the loss of a loved one, but also celebrate a life that has been an inspiration to all of us. And now I will turn it over to my conversation with William Hughes. Joining the podcast is William Hughes, a Democratic candidate for the state house in House District 21. This is in the Holly Springs and and parts of South Canton area in Cherokee County. William, welcome to the podcast. Hey, how's it going? Um, So we are excited to have you here today to talk about your campaign for the state house. But before we get into some of the issues, um, tell us a little bit more about your background and what led you to run uh, for this seat in the state house. Okay. Um, I have grown up kind of all over the country, but I spent a lot of time in Tennessee. Uh, I was born in Georgia in Baxley. And that was while my dad was on co-op. So traveled around a lot and grew up, like I said, in Tennessee, went to college in Tennessee, uh, worked in a uh, fast food or short order cook restaurant and just kind of normal life, I guess. Uh, Always a little bit on the lower income, lower income side of things whenever I was living with my mom. But that's how that went. I got my engineering degree, went into Control systems engineering, first started off controlling wind tunnels up at Arnold Air Force Base. And then I moved down here after I met my wife, or soon to be my wife anyway, uh, back in 2005. And we got married after I moved down here, changed jobs a couple times, but always in control systems engineering. That background is a very troubleshooting, problem solving, team building and working, idea sharing kind of environment. And in the back of my mind, that's always been what I thought politics needed. And more today than probably 20 years ago, 30 years ago, when you had that, see, at least from the news clips, right? It seemed like they had a very good collegial atmosphere where they would work together to solve problems, come across the aisle, recognize that all Americans and in Georgia, all Georgians have a lot of common goals and needs and desires. And that I don't see that as much anymore. I see a lot of fighting and team and tribal kind of activity that I don't think is serving the people of Georgia. So toward the end of last year, I got a text message from someone, uh, I guess had gotten my text, my phone number from 
you know, me signing some petition online or supporting Bernie Sanders or something like that and texted me and said, hey, have you ever considered running for office? Because there's lots of opportunities in Georgia where there aren't Democrats that are incumbents. Uh, these are districts like District 21, which have been Republican districts for a very long time. But in 2018, they had a really good recruitment drive and they got a lot of people into the mix and started running campaigns and even had a lot of pretty good surprise wins and flips from traditionally Republican to Democratic things. And she, I said, yeah, I have thought about it. I mean, who, if you argue about politics on the internet every once in a while, you think, well, I could do better than that. <laughs> and uh, that, that, you know, it's like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. So I met with a guy and um, talked about what we could do. And there were lots of things that I could run for. And I just sort of picked uh, state house. So that's where I am. So you and I are speaking on Saturday afternoon and, and late last night on Friday evening, news broke that civil rights leader and Georgia Congressman John Lewis passed away. I wanted to give you a moment to reflect on his life. And as somebody who is seeking public office, what lessons do you take from his lifelong fight for justice in, in Congress and, and as a civil rights activist? I think the first lesson I take from looking at John Lewis's life is that I have missed a lot of opportunities to do good trouble, as he would say. And, you know, most of us have, because it's easy to get, just go along to get along. You know, the car broke down, that's the most important thing in your life, or uh, the refrigerator is burnt out. And, you know, you, you stack these things one after the other, and it's easy to to kind of let the world and the, the plight of your neighbors fall to the background. And my, my evaluation, I guess, or my experience watching John Lewis was that he never stopped thinking about the, his neighbors. That was always on the front of his mind. What can I do to make my brothers and sisters' lives better? And he didn't care if they were on his side or opposing him. He cared about them as people all the time. And he brought that to every, every piece of legislation, every meeting, every speech, everything that I ever saw about him. And it's when I lived, when I first moved to college to uh, Georgia, we lived in College Park for 10 years. And it was one of the bright spots on my, uh, on my going to the ballot box was seeing John Lewis's name on the ballot and voting for him because it, it, it you know, it, like I said, I, I have, I have not served the public. And, you know, at this point in my life, I don't really have a chance to serve the public in the way that John Lewis did. I can hope that me and others who have been inspired by his leadership will come together and help realize more of the dreams that he, he and Dr. King put out there and partner with all of the people of color in Georgia and in America who still don't have the kind of actual equality that they've been promised for decades. Yeah, one of those issues that is really so grounded in the fight that John Lewis dedicated his life to uh, is the issue of police misconduct. And cities across Georgia and across the country have been the site of demonstrations against police misconduct in the recent in recent weeks following the deaths of George Floyd, Rayshard Brooks, Breonna Taylor, and others. 
What message are you hearing from demonstrators who have taken to the streets in recent weeks protesting police misconduct? And for you, what sort of policy message does that translate into? What what kinds of ideas would you support if you uh, were able to go down to the Gold Dome next year? You know, I went down to Woodstock. Um, it's been a few weeks now, but I went down to Woodstock on a Sunday when they were having demonstrations about uh, George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor. And I don't believe that they, I don't believe Rayshard Brooks had been murdered at that point, but that, you know, the list is, is I listed four people and the list is just almost term, interminable. You look at it and it's just, it's, it's mind blowing. So what most of the people that I've spoken with have talked to me about, especially people of color, is their experience like George Floyd, like Rayshard Brooks, where they're just doing things that everybody else does, except they get rolled up on by the police because, and they, there's, there's nothing else that, that they can think of that would, would cause the police to be called would cause the police to find them, their activities suspicious. And they have to go into that interaction as the peacemaker. They have to go into that interaction as the professional. They have to try and be the one who's de-escalating. And so to me, you know, when I hear that, I'm like, well, I've, that's, that's not what I was told the police are supposed to do. I was told the police are, they come and they solve problems. They come and they make everything better. And you watch it on television, all these cop shows, you know, the, the, the good guy cop is always a cop who's coming in and calming everybody down and, you know, never has his or her hand near the gun. And that's not the experience of most people of color. And I understand that it's also a, a, an experience that a lot of people in poverty have, regardless of their color. But when you take all that out, it's still people of color get treated worse by our entire system it's not just the police it's the whole it's the law the da's judges juries everybody and you know women uh, white women walking their dogs and walking by a pool and calling the cops because they see black people having a good time or looking at birds or it's just it's a lot it's very deeply baked in and so it's a it's a very it's a long-term problem. And, you know, like John Lewis has been working on it for 60 years or more uh, when he passed. So there's a lot left to do. And when I think about the things that we could do with police, the, the, the defund the police movement is one that has kind of a, an unfortunate catchphrase that was born out of the, the hurt and the anger from watching George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and Rayshard Brooks and so many others. It's not about, we don't need police. We understand that there are violent people in the world and we understand that there are people who commit crime in the world. But where a lot of these interactions begin, like Rayshard was a man who was drunk and presumably thought that driving while drunk was a bad idea, went into a Wendy's parking lot in his car and went to sleep in the car and the people at Wendy's called the cops. I don't know why, maybe they were concerned that he was in a worse way than just being drunk and asleep. Maybe they thought that he had some medical issue or something, 
but that went from what should have just been a wellness check to um you know a, an altercation and a stolen taser and a guy running for it and getting shot and you know i'm that's boiling it down and it's not it's not at all fair to the to rayshard to have to boil it down like that but why was it police and the reason is that those are the only people that we have to deal with almost every situation that's kind of out of normal right we don't have a phone we don't have a phone number to call uh, mental health services. We don't have a phone number to call for homelessness or, or some poverty problem. And so I think that the one, the, the main thing that I would like to do is take some money that we have for police, for all their military equipment, and maybe, you know, let some people retire and don't replace them and use that money that we were going to pay for a new police officer to come in and pay some social workers, pay some mental health professionals, pay some poverty specialists, pay some medical professionals to come out when there's a problem and be the first person on the scene. And by all means, there should be a police officer nearby. And that social worker, mental health professional, whatever, can come in and they can begin the interaction. Because when they walk in the door, if they don't have the uniform on and they don't have their gun and their hand on their gun and their hand on their taser, that changes the whole interaction. It's, it doesn't start off at this heightened level of threat. And from there, you know, they can have their radio and, and if it starts to go downhill in a way where they think, you know, I need, I need to use force, I need force to be used to, to handle the situation, then they can call the, their backup who's standing outside or on the street or wherever, and they can come in. And that, I think that would shut down so many of these problems at the beginning before they could ever get out of hand, before they could ever end with someone on the ground with a knee on their neck. And there's a website called 8cantwait.org that has a list of some more specific police reforms. And a lot of them are very, they're, they're going to see, they'd seem very scary to people who read them. But I think that we could look at them as the, the far bound of what we could do if we were just like completely fed up with this situation. What could we do if we were doing that? And then find that middle ground with the people who have the uh, black and white flag with the blue line in it because they have their own concerns and we need to find them. And, you know, they're all our neighbors and we're all living together and we all have to do something. Surely everyone agrees we have to do something. So let's shift here and talk a little bit about the state budget. So Georgia recently concluded the 2020 legislative session. And during this session, the legislature adopted a budget that cut nearly a billion dollars from K through 12 education and cut $2.2 billion total, while not really adopting any significant options to raise state revenues, all of this in response to the recession caused by the pandemic. If you had been in the legislature during the legislative session's final couple of weeks, what kind of budget would you have advocated for? And do you think that a budget in today's context should have done more to raise state revenue to lessen the cuts that were put into place? I absolutely think that we could have had more revenue generation. Or another way to look at it would be we could have had less revenue depression. Because one thing that Georgia has been doing very aggressively for years is tax credits to try and lure businesses in. And 
study after study after study after study shows not only do tax credits not work for the purpose they are designed for, so you don't get more jobs, you don't really get more investment in the area that you can tie to those tax cuts, you don't get more economic activity in the state because of those tax cuts. But what you do see is those tax credits get paid to a company that's headquartered in California or Delaware or Florida or New York. And I, I'm, my geography is not great, but I do know that none of those places are Georgia and none of the people who live in Georgia live in those states and none of the people benefit from whatever the money gets spent on in California, New York, Florida, wherever. And let's not forget that some of these companies are international companies. So it doesn't just go to somewhere else in the United States. It goes to somewhere else in the world. It goes to Europe. It goes to China or Russia, you know? And so we can just by slashing those tax credits, we could, it's not even generating revenue. It's just stopping the bleeding. It's, it's stopping Georgia taxpayer dollars from leaving the state for no benefit to Georgians through the government. You know, we're giving our money to the government and they're like, okay, well, thanks. And here you go, Apple, here you go, Hollywood, you know, all here's, here's our taxpayer dollars. I hope you have some fun with them. The other thing that we could do is I know that the way Georgia's income tax works is we base it very heavily off of the federal income tax. So whatever you, you know, would you, I don't know if you use those online programs, but when you use the online, online tax preparation programs at the end, you do you want to do your state stuff? Sure. Well, you look at the Georgia one and it's basically just copy from line something on your 1040 to here. And then that's your starting point, And then you start doing your Georgia taxes. 40% of revenue of of missing revenue at the federal level is from people in the one percent avoiding taxes by multiple tricks that they do so that's if you look at whatever georgia's revenue is you could probably guesstimate 40 percent of what we're not getting is also coming from those people so attacking that would be something i would look at i don't know how easy that would be since like i said it's just tied to the federal government uh and i don't know that people would want to untie that and then do our own just from the beginning. What was your gross income? Okay, here's your adjustments. Now you have adjusted and go through all that. I think that it's a shame that our government, the state government that's constitutionally required to provide education has spent, has worked so hard to move its work in that area away from the state and out to the counties and cities so that in a place like where I live in Cherokee County, we have great schools because we have a very high tax base here. We have very high property values that are going up. So the, the millage rate doesn't have to be as high and you still get tons of money. So you can pay your, we pay our teachers really well. We have great facilities. We have great equipment. We have great support staff, you know, all the extra people that aren't teachers per se, but extra people in the school that help so that, and then as far as school goes, the last thing is that there's one year, I think in the past 20 years where we have fully funded schools at the, at the very, very pathetic level that the Gold Dome has put together for what's an appropriate amount of state funding for the schools. I would definitely work hard and work with anybody and any party 
to increase school funding and make make a constitutional amendment, let's say, that schools will always be fully funded. There will never be a time. And if you have to sell bonds and use our AAA credit rating, which there's there's a reason to have a AAA credit rating, and it's when you have an econo economic crisis. If you come up to an economic crisis and you have a AAA credit rating and you say, no, 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 we're just going to suffer instead, then you're not using it for anything. You, you didn't build it for anything. So let's dive a little deeper on economic recovery here. This year's budget is just the beginning of a long conversation about helping Georgia's economy recover from the pandemic. And budget cuts that were made in the wake of the Great Recession put a drag on the state's economy. You alluded to this. We underfunded education for a decade. We still spend less per person in state dollars than we did in 2008. And there aren't as many state jobs that serve as a stable middle class job that, that we once had. What needs to be done to help people recover economically uh, from this pandemic-induced recession? And do you think the approach needs to be different from the long recovery that we experienced following the Great Recession in 2007, 2008? Absolutely. The solution is to facilitate the, the economy. And sometimes that means government spending. Sometimes that means changing regulations in a way that helps people exchange money faster. And the way that you get your tax revenue is that those exchanges of money, you know, sales taxes and things like that. For so long, the, the Republican approach to what is what makes the economy work, what is good tax policy, what's good government policy has always been that it's the businesses, it's property owners, it's people who are wealthy, who know best how to make money move around and make money grow. But the truth of the matter is that you can't make an economy work by creating things to sell. You can make an economy work by having people want to buy things and not just want to buy things, but have the wherewithal to do so. So that, you know, I want that new flat screen TV, but I don't have any money, so I guess I can't buy it. Well, then the answer is a higher minimum wage so that everyone has a living wage. And right now that's in the $15 an hour range, but it also needs to be pegged to inflation. Like I said in the previous question, the point of a AAA credit rating, go ask any business, is that when you have a very high credit rating, you can go to the banks and you can borrow money at incredibly low interest rates. And you can take that money if you're a business and you can build a new factory, you can install new equipment, you can hire new workers because you're trying to meet demand. You won't ever see a business do it because they hoped that demand is coming. They're doing it because they've got really smart people going out into the world and measuring demand and asking customers, well, what do you want? Do you want more of this, blah, blah, and coming back and saying, oh, demand is going to be 5% higher next year, but we don't have any more capacity. We're running 24-7. We need to build more stuff. And so the company goes out. Well, we've got that in Georgia. We've got roads. We've got bridges. We've got our telecommunication system. We've got our power and water and other, other public works that are all in desperate need of investment. And when you invest in those things, you get a payoff because you have cleaner water and 
better water and you have more reliable power grid. I've get, you know, every once in a while our power goes bloop and that's really not great in a first world country. I, even if, you know, if lightning strikes right outside my house at this point in our technological development, I really shouldn't have to worry about the power going out, but I do because we have a pretty not well invested system. And if we thought about investing in the state, you have to hire people to build new roads. You have to hire people to string more power lines. You have to hire people to revamp your water system. And all those people have car notes and house notes and groceries to buy and kids to buy school supplies for. And they will take that money. And instead of doing what the wealthy people do, which is just put it in their pocket and wait for some opportunity, they get that money, they're gonna spend that money. And that is economic activity. And that is revenue generation for the state. So let's talk about the state's response to the, the COVID pandemic a little more from a public health perspective. So our state has recently returned to setting weekly records for the number of new coronavirus cases. We were recently designated a red zone area by the White House Coronavirus Task Force. And despite this, Governor Kemp has filed a lawsuit against the city of Atlanta for instituting tighter restrictions than those in Governor Kemp's executive order. This includes an attempt to vacate an order in the city of Atlanta that requires people to wear masks. Can you give us your view of how, as we watch cases rise again, how the state should respond to this pandemic? Sure. Um, first, let me plug uh, Reddit has a subreddit that's coronavirus GA that has a great resource for tracking how the coronavirus is going. And it's been a reliable, if depressing, source of information for me during the pandemic. I've been trying to watch for the time where I thought, aha, things are turning around two more weeks and we'll be great. But so far, I have not seen that point. Um, in early March, my, <clears throat> my sister-in-law and her husband started getting all of their jobs in Florida canceled. They work in the entertainment industry. And so they'd have uh, this event and that event and this event and that event. And it was just like they were here visiting and their phone would go bing and they'd look at it and they say, oh man, another one. And eventually it was just like their phone would go bing and they didn't want to look because it was just, you know, one more thing. So we told him if you guys, you know, that's, that's their whole income, right? So if, if that dries up, then they have no income and that's, that's a terrible place to be, which is why, you know, we should have some backstop against that, like a universal basic income, probably a different topic. The, they moved up here. And so they've been here the whole time. So they've been here since the end of March, which is that's four months ago, almost. Um, it's been great for my kids because they love having their aunt and uncle around. It's been great for us because we love having extra adults in the house to keep. But that's not most people's experience. Most people's experience is that the this thing has resulted in layoffs. It's resulted in furloughs. It's resulted in cut hours. They cut my salary at work because um, they, you know, they still need me to work, but they don't want to pay me as much as they were paying me before throughout the pandemic. And I appreciate that the the high level people in the co company are also taking larger percent pay cuts, but um, our, and that, you know, that that's just the economic side of COVID, right? But then there's the whole health side of it. 
and the government response side of it. And probably we would have, I, I could have just told you if you'd asked me to like close my eyes and make a guess as what Governor Kemp would do. If you'd asked me that in March 1st, I probably could have been pretty close because all he cares about and all most of the elected Republicans in Georgia care about is their, how they look to the national Republican party, to the conservative media, to special interest groups that are tightly tied in with the Republican party. And that's all they're going to do. They're going to do whatever makes them look good to those groups and especially to president Trump. So I would have told you that as soon as president Trump said it's over, Kemp would have said it's over. And, uh, it was actually kind of interesting because Kemp said, let's open the state. And then a couple of days later, Trump was like, well, I don't know if we should open the state, but now you've already, now you're kind of stuck. He's already said we should open the state. So it's, he's been just every time he's had an opportunity to do something right by the people of Georgia, governor Kemp has chosen the other path and we need a statewide mask mandate like our neighbor Alabama has. We need to have a statewide digital learning for at least the fall so that no child and no teacher and no cafeteria worker, no janitor, no coach, no bus driver has to put their life on the line because it helps Governor Kemp's reelection chances or helps uh, the fundraising for the Republican state committee. We need to focus on shutting it down, shutting down COVID. However, we have to do that. And every other country in the world, almost every other country in the world has shown us that you have strict mask mandates, contact tracing, broad testing. Testing has been very unreliable in Georgia. We have very unreliable contact tracing and you, you gotta, you have to attack it. You can't just ignore it. And that's where we are right now. That's where our government is right now. And I'm afraid that when the legislature starts up in January, we're still going to be dealing with this. And if that's the case, and when I'm in the legislature, I'm going to, you know, it's going to be, we need to figure out what's going on. We need to figure out what you guys did wrong, how we can do better. And we need to start implementing. We'll have to start implementing masks and we'll have to, at that point, be close to a vaccine. I hope have to provide for every Georgian to get that vaccine free of charge and get our contact tracing working and get everything going. And it's Unfortunately, we're in this for the long haul because of the way that it's been mismanaged. Do you think that there is a connection between the priorities that Governor Kemp has had in his approach to reopening and in this challenge and in, in reopening schools? I saw in Cherokee County in your district, teachers and community members recently protested a reopening plan that they called rushed and inadequate to ensure the safety of students, teachers and staff. And it appears to me from from the governor's public statements that much of his reopening has been focused on the need to support economic activity. Do you do you have problems with the prioritization there? Do you think that the focus on the economy takes away from safety for students? How, how do you think about those two issues interacting? Uh, well, it was it was a really good time that we had out there. I was out there with Jenny Lennox and Charles Ravenscraft. I'm not aware of any of the Republican candidates for the state house or Senate in the area showing up to s express support for their teachers. Uh, they may have been there. I just I wasn't aware of them being out there, but we had a good time. We had some good chance. Uh, we had a rainbow over the over to the to the side when we were doing it. 
it's folly to always look at the economy and and the economy they're almost always talking about the stock market they're almost always talking about shareholder value they're almost always talking about having the lights on somewhere when they talk about the economy they're not talking about jobs they're not talking about pay they're not talking about benefits they're not talking about worker safety so the prioritization is not just to say the economy over schools it's to say profit over schools and it's wrong and we know that it's wrong because there are other countries the entire world has had covid it's not america it's not just europe it's not just a country in europe you know i i trust governor cuomo when he says that probably the way that it got to new york which is probably the way that it mostly got to the rest of the us was from europe we can see those countries over there they did and and there's lots of countries and they did it in sort of different ways but most of them most of them did very heavy duty lockdowns and mask orders and just amazing amounts of testing and super duper contact tracing where they could they could tell you where you got that covid from and quarantine everybody that probably has it without necessarily even testing them and they shut it down and you can see all these countries all over the world except for the united states and brazil and you know and even within the us if you look at new york and you look up in the new england all the tree huggers up there they are basically under control except for when people from georgia come to new york or people from florida go to new york that's like the only source of their covid now and that all has to do with prioritizing the people so not the economy not schools not you know anything just the people over any other concern and that's the job of the government it's in the preamble to the us constitution we the people first thing that the founding document of our country says is about the people and that's what makes it so galling that the most important thing for everyone for the for mostly the republicans was we got to get the economy up and running again because i can't stand seeing the nasdaq down so low the pandemic has also highlighted inequities in our health system prior to the pandemic the state already had some of the worst health metrics on things like chronic health conditions and maternal mortality but for those who lose their jobs during this pandemic many will also lose their health coverage too putting health services even farther out of reach what does the state need to do to improve healthcare access first and foremost and i'm and i'm going to say it's probably the number one it's it's so hard to pick a a most important issue at this time and probably my chance of my chance of winning would be basically zero if it wasn't if there weren't so many problems that need new approaches and need new leadership but the number one for me the easiest problem to solve is medicaid expansion we had an opportunity with the affordable care act when it first passed to expand medicaid in georgia and unfortunately the way that it that that issue is presented is usually an issue where people's racism gets kind of you know teased so when they would talk about it they would talk about poor people but they were kind of winking at poor black people would get this free healthcare and you don't want that right that would be terrible because then how would they learn uh, some lesson but what we've seen 
is what we were seeing before the ACA and what we're seeing continuing now is rural hospitals everywhere are closing down because they don't have the money. And the reason they don't have the money is because poor rural white Georgians can't afford healthcare. And so they, they have some health problem and they don't go see the doctor and they either wait until it gets so bad that they go to the ER or they, they wait and then eventually they learn to live with it or, you know, whatever. And the solution is to have these people be healthy. The solution is to have every Georgian be able to be healthy. So we start with Medicaid expansion, which like I said, is super easy to do. We just say, yes, please, we would like the money. And after that, we need to look at, I don't know that I wanna wait for Medicare for all to come. I mean, even if the National Democratic Party manages to get the entire federal government in 2000, in, you know, November, starting January, I don't know that I wanna wait for them to do it and go through all their negotiations and chipping away at what could be a good bill until we get some, you know, not so great thing. And I don't know why Georgia can't have peach care for all, right? And that would be a that would be a topic I would want to look at. And I know that it would be really hard because it's very unlikely. I haven't actually checked the math. I don't it might not it might be mathematically impossible, but it's very unlikely at least for us to get the Senate. And we'll still have Governor Kemp there probably trying to uh, prove how how Trumpy he is to the National Republican Party so that the National Republican Party will bless him one day and let him run for president. But I think it's a fight to have. I think that for so long, especially in Georgia and the South, the Democratic Party has let the Republican Party define the narrative and say, this is what we're going to talk about. And we can only talk about these things. And we need to start fighting back and say, no, we need to talk about health care for everyone. We need to talk about a living wage. We need to talk about police reform and <laughs> fully funding education like the Constitution. <laughs> um, I think that, that we have an opportunity here to really, really improve the health care that Georgians have access to in a very short time just with Medicaid expansion and then in the longer haul look at some sort of peach care for all. So although the political environment right now looks pretty favorable for Democrats, this district is likely to be an uphill battle for you. When this seat was contested in 2018, Representative Scott Turner won that race 75 to 25 percent. Turner is leaving the legislature, so this is an open seat. But can you tell us about how you plan to bring more conservative voters to your side in this campaign? And, and are there parts of your message that you're finding that are resonating with those kind of voters now? Well, you know, it's it's been one of the unfortunate side effects of COVID that we don't get to go out and talk to people as much. But the discussions that I've had with regard to conservative views and, and the kind of the very, as you've correctly pointed out, the conservative nature of this area, we have a lot of people kind of on the I don't kind of on the later, later term, later time of life, you know, rat retirees and people who are financially well off here. And their main concern usually revolves around uh, financial issues. So they aren't the most of the people here with those conservative views. There's a lot of them that are on the wealthy end of the spectrum. And then so for them, it's fiscal 
and financial issues. And so for them, my message is that for the longest time, we've just been told that the key is to cut taxes, cut taxes, cut taxes and starve the beast and make the gov- make the state government as small as possible. And then everything will go gangbusters. And that's just not happened. There's no part of the state economy where it's like on fire and just doing the most awesome. It's just steady. It's doing okay. And part of that is because for every gain that you get from release, relaxing regulations or cutting taxes or something like that, well, your roads are worse. So you have to repair your trucks more often or the power is less reliable. So every once in a while you have a whole plant shut down and working in the control systems field, I know that when you have a power outage, shut your plant down, it's not easy to get it back up. It's not, it's nowhere close to as easy as if you're like, okay, today we're going to shut the plant down. Okay, everybody. So they walk around and they turn everything off in an orderly fashion. It makes it real easy to come back up because you just go through the steps to start it back up. But if it was in the middle of production and the power goes out, boom, that's a day of lost production. And that's expensive. It's expensive in a way that's really, it's, it's kind of mind blowing. So, you know, if you have bad infrastructure that can't support your businesses, they can't produce. If you have a bad education system that's not putting out people who are capable of just hitting the ground running at your job and you have to do all this education that really should have been the job of the state when they come in, that's that's a drag on your productivity. So all those things for the economic side. And then as far as the tax side of things goes, a lot of people here are concerned about property taxes because as I said before, the state has pushed the responsibility for funding education out to counties and cities. So the counties and cities have the millage rate as their number one revenue generation for paying for schools. And people are rightly concerned about that because, you know, once you get to retirees, that's a fixed income. That's, you know, I get $3,000 a month or $6,000 a month or whatever it is. And that's what I have to live on. Well, if your tax bill goes up and up and up, but your income stays the same, that's no good. So I think shifting the way that we do taxes and like catching, recapturing all that lost tax credit revenue going to California, we could redo the tax system in Georgia so that people who who are retired or have fixed income don't have to worry about getting taxed out of their house. On the other end, you know, we have all the people who work in the service economy. They need to have a pay raise, basically. They need to have a living wage so that they don't have to work two jobs. They can work one job. And then what that does is it frees people up. They can work their service job and then they can work on building a little business on the side. And after a while, they build that business into something that's revenue generating for the state on you know the taxes that it pays and the, and the economic activity that it creates. All those transactions can be taxed by the state at small amounts, but all those little pennies, they add up. And what we've seen is that this whole cut taxes, starve the beast, smallest government possible does not work. It does not generate nearly as much wealth as you can see in the state of New York, in the state of California, where they have they have higher taxes there, but they also have higher revenue. They have more people getting more money all the time because the state invests in the infrastructure that businesses and people need to get rich. So William, we've touched on a lot of uh, big issues, challenging issues that the legislature would face next year. Are there any other issues you'd like to touch on before we go today? Um, one that I thought of when I was talking about the property tax issue is that's fundamentally rooted in a value of people should have housing. People should have somewhere to live. And it's 
there's a there's a little movement if you look at some of the campaign signs around here, um, no high density. And I definitely appreciate why people are concerned about that. But at the same time, that value that says your property taxes shouldn't go up because you shouldn't be priced out of your home by the taxes on the home is a value that says people should have somewhere to live. And as Georgians, we need to look at our neighbors and we need to say that I recognize that you have a right to live somewhere just like I have a right to live somewhere. And I don't, I'm not saying at all that we should just open it up and go wild west on high density because I'll, you know, my, my house is on two acres. It's nice. I have a bunch of woods in the back. That's nice to have, but people need to have somewhere to live and we need to be mindful of helping our neighbors have an opportunity to have somewhere to live. And I think that we can work on that in a way that's cooperative and can actually make everybody happy. Because if you can have people living closer to their job, that cuts down on congestion, which is another thing that you hear a lot about up here is all the congestion on 575. And that, you know, we can, we can work it out. We can allow some high density. We can plan. We can shoot for taller buildings. We can, there's lots of ways that you can get more people because there's just more people and more people because people keep making more people. Um, you can get there with cooperation instead of these absolutist, no high density ever kind of approaches to things. All right. Well, William Hughes is a candidate for the state house in, in Georgia House District 21. William, if people would like to learn more about your campaign, how could they do that? My main probably my main campaign site is my Facebook page, which is Hughes, the number four GA. So facebook.com slash Hughes four GA. I have a website, Hughes for Georgia. It's just all spelled out. Hughes, F-O-R, Georgia.com. I have Hughes, the number four GA on Twitter. Hughes, the number four GA on Instagram. I have a YouTube channel that you just have to search for because it's just this long string of characters. It doesn't make any sense, but it's all linked for my website. And then um, I have an Act Blue up on my website. And if you look on my Facebook page, and I believe on my Twitter page, I've actually linked to a Act Blue for 20 House candidates, 20 House Democratic candidates, where you can kind of spread the love of your donations so that you're almost certainly donating to a lot of can to a lot of winning campaigns. And I'm planning on mine being a one of those winning campaigns. And with everybody's help, we can get there. All right. Well, William, we really appreciated you joining the podcast and telling us about your campaign for State House today. All right. Well, I appreciated it. I thank you for having me on here. And I look forward to hearing from Jenny and from Charles at some point. <laughs> That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.